You can fire off as many Bible verses as you want. You can't use fiction to prove facts. It doesn't matter that some of these people lived when Jesus was supposed to have lived. They never saw him, met him, or sat him down for an interview. When you ask a Christian professor or theologian to cite proof that Jesus was real, all you get is a parade of early church fathers all parroting each other with nothing to go by but their own convictions. Even with evidences well in place that contradict their beliefs, even with full access to every point of view out there, those pews still fill up along with the offering plates, and the lies continue to spread and take root in the minds of believers. There is no historical record of a guy stirring shit up in Palestine on either a social, political, or metaphysical level at the time, period. You're banking your entire so-called eternity on this thing. Doesn't it matter whether or not it's real? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. So a 2015 survey conducted by the Church of England found that 22% of adults in England did not believe Jesus was a real person. That's a big number. And oddly enough, a lot of Christians out there, not evangelicals, but a lot of Christians out there also hold the view that the gospel is largely or completely allegory. Why are so many people, even those who don't call themselves Christians, so quick to simply accept at face value that this person existed with no credible proof? I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are looking at the question of whether or not Jesus ever even existed. I won't spoil it for you, but I do think you'll be surprised at the answer, or lack thereof, that we will attempt to explain as we go. We'll have way more to say about that in a few minutes, but first, Robin Bullock goes bollocks on the Constitution, the never-ending war on women, and pardon me for loving Jesus. It's Christians behaving badly, be appalled, be very appalled edition. I'm almost afraid to say it, but Shell, what have you got for us this week? (laughs) Well, first up, we've got Robin Bullock showing us that he doesn't know his Bible or our Constitution. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. The self-proclaimed prophet explained recently that our Constitution is the only one in history that hasn't changed and that it was written from the Word of God. Oh, really? I'm not sure how he came to this conclusion. I guess he doesn't understand what an amendment is, or that there were 27 of them. I'm surprised he didn't make mention of the fact that there are 27 books in the New Testament, so there had to be 27 amendments to the Constitution. I know, perfect opportunity. Yeah. But yeah, so our Constitution has literally changed 27 times. Yeah, 27 times, but that's nothing when you consider how many changes of mind that his God has gone through over the years, this God that is supposed to never change. I know. He goes on to say that the idea of our three branches of government and the separation of powers is in the Bible. I'd like to see chapter and verse on that one, buddy. I'm guessing that he didn't offer any. No. They love to just say it's in the Bible. They say shit. They That's just all they do. They love to say it's in it's like, the Bible, and they can't tell you where yeah. until you pin them down, and then they scramble yeah. for something that they can glean that meaning from and say, well, here it is. Yeah. The only form of government I see in all of the Bible is a theocracy. Well, I mean, there are other forms of government in the Bible. I mean, you see yeah. the Roman government well, at work. You see, a, you, you see the governmental structure of everything from the Old Testament forward. I understand what you're saying, but there's a lot to be learned about how to and how not to govern yeah. in the Bible also. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and more on the how not to. Much, much more yeah. on the how not to. This isn't a very long story. It's mainly to point out that the people that evangelicals seem to respect most don't know anything about the Bible or the Constitution enough to speak on it with any sort of coherence. The nonsense about our Christian nation is just that, but they just don't want to admit it. Also, as a side note, reading the replies on the Twitter feed has given me the best descriptive nicknames for Robin Bullock ever. Oh, these look... Yeah, these are good. Twitter user The Boris calls him Bargain Basement Boromir. <laughs> and user 
Alyssa G.D. Courage called him Nickelback Aragorn. Wow. That's so awesome. Well, he hasn't made it as a wise man, that's for sure. No. And, you know, just to uh, to comment on one little thing that you said earlier, you know, what difference does it make whether or not he knows the Bible? Because the average Christian doesn't know the Bible. No. The average Christian never cracks open their Bible until Sunday morning. And even then, they're more enthralled with the entertainment value yeah. of the sermon delivery than they ever will be with the words. I mean, you've said it yourself. You don't remember yeah. anything that ever came from the pulpit, but you remember how a lot of it made you feel. Yeah. And that's why guys like this are popular, because he presents things in a way that's engaging. At least to his target audience, it's engaging. And that's why he's successful. It doesn't matter that he doesn't know the Bible. And it doesn't matter that he makes claims like this, because no one who matters to him is ever going to challenge him on it. Right. And that's the bottom line. I hate to ask, but what's next? I only wish my other two stories were as lighthearted as that one, but they really aren't. Oh, they really are not. No. My next story is about a female Catholic lawmaker in Missouri who seeks to punish women leaving Missouri to get an abortion. It's bad enough that there's only one abortion clinic in all of Missouri, and that is in St. Louis. The number of abortions that they perform is very low because of, you know, how they're trying to criminalize it. Well, yeah. There's only about 10 to 20 slots for abortions per month. For the entire state. For the entire state. However, Illinois has a Planned Parenthood right next to the border of Missouri, and that was done on purpose, and thousands of Missouri residents have obtained abortions from them. This is much to the chagrin of State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, who has been trying to figure out ways to crack down on the residents of Missouri getting out-of-state abortions. And now she's figured out a way to get that stopped entirely. According to the New York Times, an unusual new provision introduced by State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman would allow private citizens to sue anyone who helps a Missouri resident obtain an abortion out of state using the novel legal strategy behind the restrictive law in Texas that since September has banned abortions in that state after six weeks of pregnancy. Coleman has attached the measure in an amendment to several abortion-related bills that have made it through committee and are waiting to be heard on the floor of the House of Representatives. I'm sure that this is going to incur some legal challenges, like the Texas law did, but with Democrats lacking the numbers to protect women's rights to control their own bodies and the very conservative Supreme Court it's worrying how many of these laws are being suggested or even enacted. What's worrying to me more than any of that is that this is a woman going after women. Yeah. That's really fucking disturbing. I mean, it's not surprising. No. I'm, I'm understanding full well how these people think, and it, it, it is not even remotely surprising, but it is absolutely appalling. Yeah. I mean, what business is it of hers or anyone else's? No. We're expanding the war on women now to two states. Not that not that there isn't one oh, going on more. everywhere. Okay. Yeah. I'm talking about this particular thing. Yeah. Now we are going to expand it to another state. And the only thing this is going to do, if it works, is empower other states to do the same. And, yeah, and that that's... is that's very, very scary. Yeah. I mean with all due respect, why not just put the burkas on them right now and be done with it? Mm. You know, it's this just it's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And the fact that this is coming from a woman absolutely infuriates me. I know. And her reasons for creating this new law are extremely selfish. While Coleman says she has been happy to see the sharp decline in abortions in Missouri because their only abortion clinic has only 10 to 20 slots. She says she can't fully celebrate the success when so many women are obtaining the same procedure a few miles away. Coleman's track record in Missouri has never been good. She has a long history of anti-abortion activism and, more recently, supporting anti-vax policies. Oh, there's a surprise. Yeah. Unfortunately, her Catholic faith fully supports her cruelty. It's not even an evangelical this time. It's, no, uh, it's a Catholic. And and you know what? That doesn't surprise me either because no. they, they have been very staunchly anti-abortion from the beginning. 
from before Roe v. Wade was even an argument. The Catholic Church has always had this stand. I mean, with all due respect, if these women keep having babies, well, there's more kids for their priests yeah, to touch. I know. Oh, it drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. We've got one more, folks. One more. Just hold tight. I, yeah. I promise you, this is the end of the misery for one week. I know. It's been terrible this week. This is a story about injustice. In 2018, a handful of students had to cross a rural highway to get on their school bus in Fulton County, Indiana. Despite the safety arm of the school bus extended, signaling to all drivers to stop while kids crossed the road, 24-year-old Alyssa Shepard ran through it, killing three children from the same family and severely injuring a fourth child. Shepard went on trial for this unintentional yet reckless accident and was convicted of three counts of reckless homicide and one count of reckless driving. The sentence was handed down a total of 10 years, four in prison, three in home detention, and three on probation. Considering she could have been sentenced to over 21 years in prison, this sounds surprisingly lenient. She was supposed to leave prison in September of 2022, but it came as a surprise to everyone when she was released from jail just this week. Why did she get released from prison six months early? Because Shepard took a Bible study course called Plus Faith 2.0, Criminal Lifestyle, Attitudes, and Behavior, and that shaved an extra six months off her sentence. There's more of that awesome separation of church and state right there. Really? Jesus Christ. Jeez. As you can imagine, the family of the children killed because of her recklessness are not happy at all. Oh, that's an understatement. Yeah. Oh, they're pissed, and I oh, don't they, blame they them. They have oh, every my reason God. to be. Yes. The family of the children killed and hurt in the crash said in November that Shepard had not, at least at that time, attempted to reach out to them or apologize for her actions. Why bother? Jesus forgave her already. Uh... To this day, Shepard has not taken responsibility for her actions, has never even apologized for killing our children, and has never shown remorse for her actions. She received a six-month reduction in her sentence for simply completing a Bible study class, which we feel was absurd. It's more than a feeling. Oh, yeah. That's the least of the descriptors Yeah, that's, for that. that's one of the most understated things. Yeah. And you can tell... That they are trying to be a little bit more reserved. They're not. Yeah. They're trying not to fly into a rage in the middle of an yeah. interview. But yeah, the the word absurd is the definition of understatement in oh, this yeah. instance. Yeah, Christianity is a religion, and that should never be used as a get out of jail free card. There's not much information about the reasoning other than she professed faith in Jesus. But that's enough. I mean, this happens all the time. I know. It's crazy. It's, it's a card that these people play. Yeah. If she was truly repentant, she would have said something to the family. Yeah. But there's that wonderful evangelical arrogance that I know she's hiding behind because I know plenty of people who hide behind it. Yeah. Where it's, you know, my actions are covered under the blood, so it doesn't matter who else forgives me. I mean, with all due respect, I've gotten that line from my own mother. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, Yeah. It's, it's just the way that they think about things. I guarantee you that if she found Jesus in prison, then she was instantly indoctrinated to believe that everything that she had done wrong was forgiven, even with a good person. That can really skew their thinking oh, yeah. in terms of their own actions and the seriousness of their own actions. Because when you offer someone instant forgiveness just for asking for it, it really can become an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of thing, even for someone who has a decent heart when it comes to other people. It may not even have occurred to her that it's necessary to reach out to the families. Yeah. Because why bother? It's under the blood now. Ugh. You see, that's the way that they think. That's yeah. the way a lot of them think. Yeah, I know. But, you know, it's horrifying that simply by completing a Bible study course that she escapes consequences for her actions. Christian privilege exists, and our culture is steeped in it. Well, yes, it absolutely exists. It continues to amaze me how they whine about being persecuted. Oh, yeah. You know, like I said in that episode, Christianity is one of the most protected and tolerated religions out there. Ugh, and yeah. in a situation like this, it's a strategic move to be a Christian yeah, in it some is. instances like this. Because who the hell knows what she actually believes? 
who the hell knows what's really going on inside that head of hers and whether or not she's sincere about this faith that she's professing here. Because with all due respect, if someone told me I could get out of jail six months early by taking a Bible study course, I'd take the Bible study course yeah. and regain my freedom. It doesn't necessarily mean that I believe anything no. or that I learned anything from it. All they wanted was for me to take it. It's just like traffic school. You get too many points on your license hmm. and uh, and they sentence you to, to traffic school yeah. so that you can get those points deducted. This is the exact same thing, oh, yeah. except they're not using any kind of curriculum here that will teach this person to be a better member of society. You know what? Traffic school probably would have benefited her. Yeah, you know, right? Making her sit through like a defensive driving course where now she understands that she has to stop for the fucking school bus. Seriously? Might have been something that I would have at least been able to see the logic in right. reducing her sentence over. Because with all due respect, there are people out there that have kind of a problem with the concept of right and wrong. Oh, yeah. And there are plenty of people who are very, 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 very ignorant to traffic laws. I can tell you firsthand, and I'm not even talking about the 16-year-olds. Oh, yeah. There are plenty of people out there that I witness every single day doing things that just leave me scratching my head. It's like, you didn't really think that that was an appropriate thing for you to be doing behind the wheel of your car, did you? Well, you know what? They don't think about it. And <laughs> yeah. maybe if more of them did, maybe if more of them were forced to, then things would be different out there. And maybe if they would just nix it with the Jesus bullshit mm. and actually teach this person something that gives her an idea of the wrong in what she's done, that right there might have been worth reducing the sentence over. It might have been. But when I think about the fact that she took four people's lives and yeah. she really didn't do a whole lot of time for that, no. the way that this whole thing panned out, it's like, I'm I'm sorry. But long before I had a driver's license, I knew that you were supposed to stop for school buses. Yeah. So, I mean, what exactly is the defense here? I would have thought at least 10 years per count. Yeah. And served them back to back. That would have made sense. Yeah. But not only is she not learning a really difficult lesson about uh, the consequences of her actions here, now it's being reinforced by the court system that having a relationship with Jesus can get you out of trouble. Yeah. And I think that sucks. It does. I think it sucks big time. And I think that there are constitutional issues with that up the yin-yang. But with the people in charge who are deciding what's constitutional and what's not at this point, mm. what difference does it really make? I hate to sound hopeless here, but what fucking difference does it make? We're going to see more of this. And it's going to become more absurd as we go. And that's just the way that it is. And when it happens, we'll be here to talk about it. Yeah. Because the more people know and understand what's going on out there, the more people can speak out against it. Yeah. And the more people can take people out of office that write ridiculous policies and laws like this or allow these kinds of things to happen under their jurisdictions. There are things that we can do, but only if we're informed. Right. And only if we pluck up some of that righteous anger and do something about it. So without getting too hot under the collar over this, and it, it's, it would be very easy for me to just oh, keep yeah. going off on a diatribe about this. Mm -hmm. But I really do want to move on and get into our main topics. So just before we do that, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Network. Any size donation that you see fit to help us out with is going to help us tremendously. And we would appreciate any support that you are able to uh, to provide to us at this time. If you don't have money to spend on free content, we totally get that too. So help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, good reviews, and tell someone new about the show this week. Tell five new people about the show this week. Tell 50 new people about the show this week. Tell as many people as you know who need to get free of this Awful religion. I mean, what more do we need to say about it oh, than gosh. these three stories that we covered tonight about how awful and terrible and inhumane this religion really is? These were three very, very good examples of that. If you are as tired of this bullshit as Shell and I are, then help us get the word out in any way you can with your dollars, with your clicks, with your words toward friends, family, anyone you know who needs to hear this messaging, let them know it's out there. 103 episodes worth at this point. They're going to find something that's going to resonate with them. So tell someone new about the show this week, and let's help some more people get and stay unbound together. 
And just before we get into our main topic, as I was researching this, this just sort of came to me and I like it when it happens that way because then I don't have to think so hard about it <laughs> when I'm in the middle of driving to and from work. Yeah. So next week on the heels of this discussion of whether or not Jesus was real, we're going to be talking about the Trinity and making the point that it really is not a concept that is unique to or even new to Christianity. And we're going to show you how far back that concept actually goes and how many religions before have adopted this same sort of model yeah. when constructing their deities. So that's going to be next week. For right now, let's just dive right in and see what kind of answer we can come up with to this question of whether or not Jesus really ever existed. Let's start out the conversation by tackling the real elephant in the room, and it isn't whether or not Jesus was ever real. It's the very real problem of having to prove a negative. In most cases, this is flat out impossible, and I'm sorry to say this subject is no exception. We have no ironclad proof that he wasn't real, but we do have a number of compelling evidences that point to that conclusion. And here are just a few. There is no, no no, no, first century secular evidence that Jesus ever existed. All sources that purport to offer proof were penned by either Christians or Jews, and these accounts have clear bias built in. They cannot be used as proof. It's that simple. The earliest New Testament writings are vague and contradictory on the details of Jesus's life. We've talked about this recently with yes. all with biblical contradictions and contradictions in the in the nativity story. Right. The New Testament is fraught with contradictory information about Jesus, who he was, his origins, and all of that. And just the skeleton of information, the, the not, it's not even an outline. When you consider everything that this person must have gone through in the 33 years that he quote-unquote lived, what we know about him, what we're told about him, is next to nothing. First he's a baby, now he's 12, now he's 30. God, there are lots of holes in this story. And yes, a lot of stories have sweeping time jumps built in. But here's the thing. Historical documentation doesn't. You cannot have a 30-year gap in information and call it historical or call it factual. Because with all due respect, Jesus was a teenager. He was a 20-something. And yet, none of the gospel writers thought that anything about his early years, aside from his birth, and only two of them thought that that was even significant. They don't seem to think that anything about his young life meant anything. But here's the thing. If we're going to assume that he is who he said he was, or and yes, he did absolutely make claims about being God right there in the Bible. When you see me, you're seeing the Father. I and the Father are one. It's in there. Yeah. But that doesn't make it true either, because with all due respect, the Bible isn't a credible source of information about anything either, not even when it comes to the foundations of one of, or I guess still the biggest religion in the world. We have talked about this recently, so I'm just going to breeze over it quick. The accounts in the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all secondhand. There were absolutely no eyewitness accounts to any of the events in the text, no matter who the writers interviewed or researched. None of them witnessed anything they wrote about, and yet the Gospels are fraught with contradictions, some of which we've already examined on this show. Lastly, modern scholars who claim to have discovered the quote-unquote real Jesus contradict each other on a broad platform of details. They cannot agree about anything when it comes to this guy. Now, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Christianity is nothing more than the product of some very good marketing. In fact, I don't think the people who concocted this ruse even had the first clue how good it was. But this enigmatic marriage of hope and fear worked and has continued to work for centuries. And it's all predicated on perpetuating the notion that this person was real. He really did all of the things that are in the Bible. And he has the solution to the problem of death. Death is the one thing that we don't have and will likely never find the answer to, no matter how science advances, no matter what proofs people want to say that they're bringing back from near-death experiences, we're never going to know until we experience it. And even then, with all probability, we're not going to know then either because we won't have anything to think about anymore. Now, I'd like to think that something like San Junipero, for my Black Mirror fans out there, 
I'd like to think that something like that could be a real thing one day. But even in that scenario, I'm not convinced that you can capture someone's consciousness and allow them to retain it indefinitely after death. There's no science that comes close to even explaining why we have consciousness in the first place or why anything, anything lives for that matter. So without those pieces of the puzzle, it's kind of hard to put the rest together. I have a certain affection for this book series, Otherland, by yeah. Tad Williams. Mm-hmm. And this concept, the same concept that you see in San Junipero, is sort of kind of yeah. dealt with in those books. And it doesn't work out very well no. for the people who attempt it, although some of them are successful. Right. But here's the thing, and this is this is the question that I had about that way back in the day, because these books are like 20 years old now. But um, the, the, the question that I had back in the day is, does it even matter? Were they able to transfer their consciousness into the simulation, or is it just a simulation at this point? Yeah. Are these people even aware of what they're, quote-unquote, going through now? So these are fun questions to mull over, but we're never going to have the answers to them. And that's just, that's just the bottom line. But Christianity purports to have that answer. And I do think that that one thing is the thing um, between between that and the fear of hell. I mean, yeah. and they kind of both go together. But I think those two things are what has kept this bandwagon rolling for as long as it's been. But in terms of who we are and why we are, Christianity Christianity does purport to have answers for this. It makes the claim that our consciousness is eternal and our perception of things hinges on whether or not we accept this gift of salvation that they purport to be able to offer. Well, not offer, but guide you toward. Mm. And if they're going to make the claim to be able to guide you towards something, they also need to give you something to follow. Hence, the creation of a deity, one who has the power to offer you an eternity of bliss or fate you to an eternity of anguish. The notion that these things are possible and that your fate could send you in either direction is the only thing that has kept this going for so long. So let's keep in mind that Christianity, as religions go, is fairly new. Let's also keep in mind that most of the stories in the Bible have much older origins. Let's further keep in mind that there are plenty of deities or godmen in mythology that share many of the characteristics that Jesus possesses. Nothing about his story is unique, but you have to be literate and have access to information to realize that. Or at least those who this was presented to early on. That was the situation they were in. Most of them couldn't even read, so they were at the mercy of what they were being told. Contemporaries to gods like Mithras and Osiris would have no clue what their stories contained. Once you have a cycle in place of a good story coupled with the indoctrination, particularly of the young, you have a recipe for sustaining an idea practically indefinitely. So there's another piece of the puzzle. The internet in its current form has been here for nearly 30 years now, and yet people still flock to churches every single Sunday, even with evidences well in place that contradict their beliefs, even with full access to every point of view out there, those pews still fill up along with the offering plates, and the lies continue to spread and take root in the minds of believers. Now, you would think that once we had advanced to the point where we were able to look at the broader history of religion and mythology, when we have access to all kinds of opposing views and the ability to examine comparative religions, the similarities would stand out. We would see the stories for what they are, and that would be the end of it. But that isn't what has happened. Why? Well, According to psychology today, a vast majority of people who believe in a god do so because they consider the truth of a god's existence as self-evident. All the intricacies of life and the universe had to have an origin and a design. Science has proven over and over that this is not true. New species of animals still crop up all the time, and the sheer chaotic nature of the universe and how it functions strongly suggests that the notion of intelligent design is at best fallacious. Here's the thing, though. Most people are never going to look far enough into this to even have the notion of questioning. Most people are, in fact, followers. They take their cues from others about almost everything. So if mom sits you on her knee and reads you Bible stories when you're two and guilty as charged, and Liam was much younger, 
That is what your perception of God is likely to be when you're 92. And let's not forget that belief in higher powers and beings is likely to have been hardwired into our DNA for eons. Not saying that it's 100% true, Mm. but it certainly seems that way. Even psychology today agrees, at least to an extent. The article that I'm drawing from here is in the show notes, and here's just a quick quote. Religious belief of some sort is a nearly universal feature of humanity, so there's quite likely some ultimate evolutionary cause that explains it. At the same time, not all people are religious, and furthermore, the forms of belief among the religious range widely. So we need to understand the proximate causes for this variation. Before going further into this, I just want to interject that there are non-religious people now because we have largely moved away from primitive existences and we have answers to a lot of questions that for the majority of our species' existence was summed up with, the gods did it. Well, we know better now, don't we? Our brains now have the data and input necessary to weigh the details and make intelligent observations about the world around us. Religion is no longer a necessary element to our experience as humans, but it is definitely a motivating thought process even among people who don't experience heavy indoctrination as children. The Psychology Today article cites the difference between ultimate and proximate causes. An ultimate cause explains how a behavior evolves. A proximate cause deals with the conditions under which behaviors present. Even though we know that religious belief has been a thing in our species from at least Sumer forward, we still don't know what the ultimate cause for this tendency is. The proximate causes are abundant and all stem from the delivery and propagation of information, observation of other humans, and the emotional response that the other two elicit. The article goes on to point out that people whose thoughts are more driven by intellect tend to discount or reject the concept of religion, while those who think more emotionally tend to gravitate toward it. Now, I am a very emotional person, which is probably why, even though I always knew that I had a good head on my shoulders, I remained rooted in those beliefs for a very long time. My own savior complex, I think, kept me active in this thing for far longer than I can honestly say I actually believed in it. My belief had started to diminish in the mid-90s. The last time I went to church was in 2011. Mm. So that tells you. When it comes to the question of whether or not Jesus ever existed, there are some very powerful opposing intellectual factions out there, all of which seem to think they have the proof needed to justify their position. Here's the thing, though. None of us do. None of us do. But some of us have better data to support our positions than others. If you are someone who listens to this show frequently, or if you willingly tap the link your friends sent you, knowing full well what we were going to be talking about and the concepts that we hope you will at least consider by the end, congratulations. You are clearly thinking more about this than the average pew sitter. And as a means of saying thank you for at least hearing what we have to say, we're about to give you a lot more to think about. So, was Jesus real? I'm not going to pretend to have a definitive answer for you. All I can do is present evidence for and against and let you draw your own conclusions. Now, if you were to ask my opinion directly, I would say without hesitation that the answer is no. Jesus is a concept. He was never a living person. He's an expertly constructed avatar that has been used to control people for centuries. I do, however, think that The people who created the avatar of Jesus understood a lot about human nature and took their cues from other influencers of their day to get the right levels of charisma, relatability, and supernatural attributes. I also think they knew all the old mythologies and were able to pinpoint parts of those stories that would impress people to the point of wanting to know more. The marriage of these two concepts resulted in a contemporary version of a lot of the older gods that the common person could relate to and follow. And to defend that position, I would like to turn your attention to a significant historical event called the Council of Nicaea. First, I need to clarify a statement that I've made before on this show. In past episodes, I postulated that Jesus was invented at the Council of Nicaea. That statement is partially true, but it is incomplete. There was already enough raw data out there to construct the avatar. In fact, there were multiple avatars with multiple attributes, but all of them seemed to have many of the same core attributes. 
there were even several primitive denominations of Christianity out there, one of which was Arianism. And no, this form of Arianism wasn't about white supremacy or anti-Semitism. In simplest terms, it was only Christian out on the outer fringes. But it was at the time a growing niche of religious thought that postulated that Jesus was not a god, just a created being. So the notion of Christ's deity was already out there, but under a lot of debate. So the council was called by Emperor Constantine to settle that argument along with a couple of others. A politician, so let's make sure we understand this, it was a politician that called the Council of Nicaea. Why? Well, render unto Caesar hits different when it comes from a deity, now doesn't it? Mm. So at the time, it was accepted that Jesus was human by a large percentage of people who called themselves Christians. From Antioch forward, most people had a deep affection for this man, Jesus, but only saw him as a man, even down to him being referred to as Yeshua bar Yosef, or literally translated Joshua, son of Joseph. I can see wanting him to be called Joshua to a predominantly Jewish audience. The name is already associated with salvation. It was Joshua who led nearly three million Israelites into God's promised land, complete with toppling a big wall by yelling at it. So yeah, there's power in that name. Jesus is simply another derivative of the name and likely the result of cross-cultural oral tradition that gave him certain Hellenistic qualities over time. The Latin I-E-S-O-U-S, or tra that's a transliteration, I-E-S-O-U-S, which is also close to the Greek translation of the name, and it became the moniker in the predominantly Roman culture out of which the mythology grew. But for non-Jewish audiences, it was advantageous to rewrite his narrative with stories of healings and resurrections, including his own. If the ancient mythologies taught us anything, it's that a little mysticism goes a long way. Mm. So Jesus himself was not created at the council. What happened there was that he got elevated to God status. And with that came the need to develop a mythos of not just a charismatic teacher, but one with superpowers who also held the keys to death and hell in his hand. The earliest mythologies made no such claims about him. And again, there is no historical record of a guy stirring shit up in Palestine on either a social, political, or metaphysical level at the time, period. Uh, fun fact here about the Council of Nicaea. One of the things that they had actually convened to, uh, to discuss and to try and settle was a permanent date for Easter. <laughs> and they didn't get there. You know why? Because the people who were involved were too set in their pagan ways oh. to allow it. I wonder how many evangelicals out there understand how it's decided when Easter is going to be. This might be an eye-opener for some of you people. <laughs> Easter does not fall on a specific day every year. I think everybody understands this. Mm -hmm. But why does it fall on the day that it falls? Well, here's your answer. Easter falls on, wait for it, this is good. Easter falls on the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. I don't think it gets more pagan than that. No. And there is no Judeo-Christian reason for it. It's purely pagan. It goes right back to the celebration of Ostara, which itself has a static day. It's always the spring equinox. But to make things more appealing to a pagan audience, now all of a sudden we're going to add all this bugaboo about full moons and equinoxes and all of that, all these things that the pastoral people of the day were very into. Mm. And that's, and by pastoral, I mean country dwellers, not clergy. Okay, let's make sure that we, well, you know, I, I understand. We, we have a bunch of evangelical fence sitters that listen to this show. So let's make sure that we clarify our terms a little bit. Now, because I am not a fan of confirmation bias, I did go searching for arguments for and against the existence of Jesus. But here's the thing. All the four examples have the same problem. At some point, they all reach brick walls with, I don't know, blazoned over the entire surface and just decide that this is where we're going to insert opinion and belief without proof. One such example is an article on str.org that stands for Stand to Reason, and their tagline is Clear Thinking Christianity. Oh, if ever there was an oxymoron in life, <laughs> it would be that. 
on str.org, there is an article by Tim Bennett that starts out with the author whining about being, quote, tired of hearing people say that the deity of Christ was invented at the Council of Nicaea, to which I would respond, of course, anything that flies in the face of something you believe in hearing the counterpoint over and over and over again is going to be irritating to ears not tuned for discussion or debate. So knowing what these people are like and how narrow their thinking is about everything. I also know that none of their arguments about this are going to be rooted in anything besides what they want to believe. Bennett goes on to dismiss any notion of Jesus being anything but real as the imaginations of, quote, cultists and skeptics. As someone who falls into the latter category, all I can say to that is, well, duh, that is the definition of skepticism, isn't it? We question things. We look for and demand proof. That's why we ask these questions. I mean, you're banking your entire so-called eternity on this thing. Doesn't it matter whether or not it's real? He then goes on to cite the Da Vinci Code as a problematic text. Here's the thing. Uh, Mr. Bennett, the Da Vinci Code is fiction. Regardless of the views of the author, it's still fiction. And Dan Brown does have some very strong views on this subject, but even his work lacks a certain crucial element that makes it impossible to take seriously or consider it a legitimate threat. It contains no observable facts to back up the claims, mostly because it's fiction. So, So now we're going to argue the validity of fiction by citing fiction as a key detractor to your belief system. Do I have that right? You know, lots of books decry the deity of Christ. Why not go after his dark materials while you're at it? Why not go after literally any Stephen King book? Because if you've read more than one of his books, you know what his thoughts are on this too. And as I scrolled further, Lord help me, I just scrolled further through this article looking for anything else that I could glean from this person's argument that wasn't complete and total rubbish. And of course, I found nothing. All I found was a mishmash of confirmation bias and that signature evangelical fallaciousness that they call proof. But I did find this line a bit ironic, so I'm just going to share this before we move on. Quote, the fact is, most people in our culture make claims that they are not equipped to defend. You don't say. Yeah, really? (laughs) Yeah. So let's put Mr. Bennett on the back burner where he belongs (laughs) and move on with this discussion just a little bit. For right now, I'm going to stay on the pro side of the argument, but only to demonstrate how devoid of secular, observable, scholarly proof exists for Jesus's existence. When you ask a Christian professor or theologian to cite proof that Jesus was real, all you get is a parade of early church fathers all parroting each other with nothing to go by but their own convictions. Here's a little who's who and a couple snippets of what they say, all very passionate, but evidence-free. Now, these examples were drawn from a blog post run by the John Ankerberg Show, a Christian media source that even has a link in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage that promises to show you how to become a Christian. (laughs) So this is the source material that I'm working with, but you're going to understand why I'm citing it in just a minute. Um, So here are some of the opinions that these people call proof. First one that they cite is Ignatius, who lived from 30 to 107 CE. He was born before Christ died, consistently spoke of the deity of Jesus Christ. And these are the types of things that he cites as proof that Jesus existed. And spoiler alert, most of them are in the Bible. Mm. Ephesians and other letters where we find references such as Jesus Christ, our Lord, or who is God and man. And I'm not going to read that entire blurb. It's it's just a lot. But I found this last little bit of commentary of theirs interesting. The fact that Ignatius was not rebuked, not branded as teaching heresy by any of the churches or Christian leaders he sent letters to proves that the early church long before 107 CE accepted the deity of Christ. No, 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 no. All it proves is that he was not rebuked nor branded as teaching heresy. And even that... I have to wonder whether or not it's true, but that is what it proves. Not that anyone accepted the deity of Christ. And there were plenty who did, but that's not proof of anything. No. Yeah. I was just thinking that like at 107 AD, how much of a structure did the early church have? 
Not much. I mean, it can't have much. No. It's only been around for, what, I don't know, 50 years at that point? Yeah, probably, if Something that. Something like that. And who's going to say, you need to rebuke this guy? It's like, no. You no. just... There, no. there, there weren't enough voices crying in the wilderness at that point. There no. just weren't. And like I said, there, this, this, this is a statement made with absolutely no qualifying data. So right. who knows whether or not it's even true. But even if it was, that is all that it proves. So let's move on to Polycarp. And this is a one-liner. And you know, Polycarp had a lot to say. We had to learn about him and a bunch of others in one of our Theo classes. Yeah. So this is another one that they say provides proof to the historical accounting of Jesus as deity. They don't even directly quote him. It simply says here that Polycarp possibly spoke of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Wow. Possibly. Possibly. There's some proof for you. Justin Martyr wrote of Jesus, who being the first begotten word of God is even God. In his dialogue with Trypho, he stated that God was born from a virgin and that Jesus was worthy of worship and of being called Lord and God. What does that prove? Nothing. It still proves nothing. So, I don't even know if I want to keep going with this whole list. I mean, one or two more, just to make the point. Titian, who lived from 110 to 172 AD, was one of the earliest Christian apologists, and he wrote, We do not act as fools, O Greeks, nor utter idle tales when we announce that God was born in the form of man. Again, opinion, yeah. not proof. So these people said a lot of things. I'm mm. getting tired of reading it already. No, and lot. I've got and I've got a longer list. I've got a much much longer list, but it all just makes the exact same point. Usually evangelicals, but Christians of a lot of ilk do this. They look at the words of people that they think know more about this than they do and accept them as gospel as much as they accept the gospel. So over time, your idea of what proof and what truth is can get very, very skewed because you trust these people, you trust their judgment because they've thought about this more than you have. So what they're saying must be right. Jesus must have been real and he must have been a God, right? Well, let's keep talking about this a little bit more. After pouring over all of that, and you know, I read through a bunch of these earlier and they're so repetitive. That's why I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them. My only question here is quite simple. Reading all of this stuff and all of this highfalutin diatribe that these people spewed in the first century, the only thing that I have to say to that is, so what? Just because you say something, it doesn't make it so. And you can fire off as many Bible verses as you want. You can't use fiction to prove facts. It doesn't matter that some of these people lived when Jesus was supposed to have lived. They never saw him, met him, or sat him down for an interview. By the time anyone significant had heard of Jesus, all the alleged events regarding his public ministry, death, and alleged resurrection had already, quote-unquote, happened. That leaves nothing in the way of proof for anyone outside of the pull of their own convictions, as each and every one of the above examples demonstrates. There's more in the show notes that I just jumped right over, and you're welcome to read them. I've had enough of it. Now, I'm going to round things out for this episode with a discussion of someone I'm amazed didn't make Ankerberg's list, probably because it's such a hot-button issue. And I'm not going to get too far into this because there are so many sources on this that say this better than I ever could. But let's talk about the most pervasive voice in the argument over the reality of Jesus. And that was Flavius Josephus. For starters, this guy is like the hero to most Christians because Mm. a lot of people believe that this guy actually is the one that provides the most verifiable proof. Well, not so much. Let's start out with a quote that I find rather scathing from a source like Encyclopedia Britannica. But whoever was tasked with writing this entry didn't get the memo about keeping commentary neutral. When the encyclopedia describes you this way, why would anyone pay you any mind? That's what I want to know. This is a direct quote from an entry on EncyclopediaBritannica.com. As a historian... Josephus shares the faults of most ancient writers. His analyses are superficial, his chronology faulty, his facts exaggerated, his speeches contrived. He is especially tendentious when his own reputation is at stake. 
Josephus was vain, callous, and self-seeking. There was not a shred of heroism in his character, and for his toadyism, he well deserved the scorn heaped upon him by his countrymen. But it may be said in his defense that he remained true to his Pharisee beliefs and, being no martyr, did what he could for his people. Interesting commentary they chose to include. Looks like someone at Encyclopedia Britannica had some strong opinions on this. So Josephus was a prolific writer and quote-unquote historian, but he put so much of a spin on everything he wrote that it is impossible to take him seriously. Here is what his Wikipedia page has to say. The extant manuscripts of the book Antiquities of the Jews, written by the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus around 93 or 94 CE, contain two references to Jesus of Nazareth and one reference to John the Baptist. The first and most extensive reference to Jesus in the Antiquities, found in Book 18, states that Jesus was the Messiah and a wise teacher who was crucified by Pontius Pilate. It is commonly called the Testimonium Flavanium. Almost all modern scholars reject the authenticity of this passage in its present form, while most scholars nevertheless hold that it contains an authentic nucleus referencing the life and execution of Jesus by Pilate, which was then subject to Christian interpolation or alteration. However, the exact nature and extent of the Christian redaction remains unclear. So there's the big I don't know right there. It pervades any and all discussion about this. It all boils down to that. It all comes down to, I don't know. And before I give you my final thoughts on this, we're doing it short and sweet tonight. I kind of need short and sweet. I kind of need an easy thing to edit this week because things are just crazy and getting crazier around here. But before I give you my final thoughts on this, I want to first and foremost make sure that everyone understands that there is absolutely nothing wrong with the concept of I don't know. So was Jesus a real person? I don't know. Was he a bunch of people from religious history all kind of meshed into one? Probably, but I don't know. We don't have any hard and fast proof for any of this. And the more comfortable that you get with the concept of I don't know, the harder it is to swallow things that are clearly untrue. Because when people try to postulate that they know something that you know to be unknowable, then it completely obliterates any and all credibility that they may have. And that's why I didn't want to go too far into that list. I could have spent at least 20 minutes on that, but I didn't think it was worth it because they all say the same thing. And every last one of those statements suffers from the exact same problem. They are being made by people who are making hard and fast claims about things that are nothing more than their personal biases and beliefs. So the more comfortable you get with the concept of I don't know, the easier it is to weed out the bullshit. And the more you weed out the bullshit, the closer you get to the truth. We don't have an answer to the question of whether or not Jesus was real, but when the only quote-unquote evidences that people can provide have to do with quoting the Bible or just using catchphrases like Jesus is God or something along those lines, if that's all you've got, then you've got nothing. And just try to remember that. In conclusion here, while I maintain that I have no proof, I think that the most practical way of dealing with the reality of Jesus lies in assuming that his story had to be based on someone. I have no issues with the idea that some zealot was running around Palestine rousing the rabble and upsetting the scribes and Pharisees. There are zealots and extremist thinkers out there in every school of thought that there is, not just religion. So if there is even a small core group of secular historians to say that it's possible Jesus existed, I'm fine with that. I still hold to my own opinion that he was either pure fiction or an amalgam of a lot of different religious figures over time. But that's all it is, an opinion that is subject to change or revision at any time. But let's just keep in mind that if Jesus or a Jesus-like person or a lot of Jesus-like people who got amalgamated into this avatar happened to exist, his or their story got very inflated over time. I think back to the musical Book of Mormon and how Arnold had to start injecting scriptures with pop culture references to pique people's interests. 
I feel like this had to be at least partly how the story got turned into one revolving around a god and not just a religious nutter. People were desperate to spread the quote-unquote good news, so they added details to the story over time to make it more exciting, more engaging, and more marketable. If I were to assume that the character of Jesus was based on one single real person, it does not surprise me in the least that his big mouth won him the ire of the religious and political leaders of the day and bought him a death sentence to shut him up and prevent a social or religious uprising. But that would clearly be where his story and most of his influence would have come to an end. And yet, here we are, two millennia later, and even secular journalists speak of Jesus as someone who actually unquestionably lived. Why? Where's the proof? You can't say the Bible because that's a book that none of us were around to witness the events it contains. Even the gospel writers never saw, spoke to, or interviewed Jesus. All they did was compile a lot of oral tradition with each account fraught with contradictions to the others. Josephus never met Jesus, even though he was purported to have lived at the same time. The Council of Nicaea proceeded from the undisputed notion that Jesus was real, also with no measurable proof. So when you come together to agree upon the details of a fairy tale, it remains a fairy tale no matter how serious you want to be about it. Now I'd like to address the evangelicals and fence-sitters out there for just a minute as we say goodnight. With the notion firmly in place that at least the biblical Jesus is a work of fiction, let me ask you this. What are you going to do with this information? As an evangelical who has spent your entire life just believing without questioning, what can you say to yourself about the things we discussed in this episode? Knowing full well that both sides of the argument are only capable of delivering conjecture, it boils down to this. What's the better story? I revisit this concept a lot because human nature is always going to make a beeline for things magical and mystical. And when you throw the promise of eternal life into the mix, it's hard to look away from that and see nothing but words in a book or in a lot of books. The question here is simple. With so many conflicting viewpoints, with so little evidence to support the claim of Christ's actual existence, why do you still believe? Jesus himself warned of houses built on sand, and if ever there was one, the concept of the existence of the Jesus of the Bible is. So try and take a step beyond the better story concept here, and consider not which is best, but which is most beneficial. What benefit is there in following an imaginary deity into an imaginary eternity that you will never, ever know you've been duped out of? What's the benefit of denying yourself even some of the simplest pleasures in life because you've had it pounded into your head that it's a sin? I see far more benefit in seeking the truth wherever it leads. I see far more benefit in thinking critically and practically about things. I see far more benefit in getting comfortable with the phrase, I don't know, and remaining committed to looking for answers as opposed to manufacturing them in a way that makes me feel comfortable and secure. What good is a false sense of security? It's no good. And you know that and you understand it. Blessed assurance should at least have assurance built mm. into it. I'm going to issue you a challenge. Consider everything you've heard tonight. Consider the pros. Consider the cons. Consider what the proponents of Jesus' existence have to offer as proof and how thin it actually is. Consider also the practicality of schools of thought that leave room for certain details but reject others on the basis of logic and reason. It's reasonable to believe that there was a first century rabble-rouser causing trouble in Palestine. It's impractical to believe that the same person had God traits and could perform miracles and wound up tried and convicted by the same people who witnessed his miracles. And lastly, it is very impractical to believe that any of the above would have missed the attention of any legit secular scholar or historian. There are a handful that corroborate the existence of a, quote, Jesus man at that time, but none who can confirm the details of him being anything but a man, and none who can confirm any of the details in any of the Gospels, period. Think on these things. Force yourself to steer your thoughts toward truth, even at the expense of personal comfort, and it will become apparent 
that the Jesus that you are staking your eternity on simply is not real. There, I said it. The Jesus you think you know is fiction, even if someone like him actually existed. Historical fiction is a thing, and it's also big business. Just ask James Cameron. Take the information presented here, examine it, mull it over as much as you want, because even if it doesn't change your mind immediately, the fact that you are willing to do that much gives me great hope that you're at least on your way to getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.